politicians that we have elected, they don't have our interests in mind. They generally have special interests in mind. There's such a disconnect between the people and the ruling class. It was always pushed, you have to go to college, have to go to college. That's always the pressure when you're in high school is you have to go get a college degree or you're not going to be successful. And that's just not the case. You're a mechanic. In your professional opinion, should Massachusetts eliminate the car inspection? You've got people saying that the world's going to end in 10 years if we don't go all electric. They've been saying that for 30 years. How do you differ from Julian Sear? Well, Senator Sear has certainly been supportive of legislation to allow these migrants to come into the state. And we saw this demonstrated during the 2022 election, actually, because some of these migrants showed up on Martha's Vineyard. It's very difficult to get him to show up anywhere, but the next day he was there on Martha's Vineyard to get those people out of there. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Sons of Liberty podcast. Today, we're kicking off a new series called Candidate Spotlight, where we interview local candidates and see their perspective on the hot button issues facing our state and our country. Today, we're honored to have Chris Lozon, candidate for Cape and Island Senate seat here in Massachusetts. Chris, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Before we get into the issues, just tell the people watching, who are you and... Why are you running? <laughs> well, like you said, I'm Chris Lozon, running for state senate, Cape and Islands District here in Massachusetts. Um, I'm a native of the Cape, grew up in Barnstable, uh, youngest of four kids, working class family, you know, typical suburban family. Um, and I went to Barnstable High School, went off to college in Louisiana, thought I was going to be an archaeologist, went to LSU, um, which was a great experience. But uh, that was during the Obama years. The economy wasn't great. And, you know, it's really difficult to actually make a living doing that sort of thing. So mm. I came back to the Cape. You know, I think a lot of us usually try to leave the Cape because we think there's greener pastures somewhere else. Yeah. And that's really not the case. But I think it used um, to be that way. And then recently, I mean, there's been so much industry brought to the Cape. Yeah, it's pretty much the same everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I ended up coming back to the Cape. I worked for the high-speed ferries over to the islands for a few years. But then I got kind of dragged into the family business. Um, which is inevitable sometimes, but, you know, third generation auto repair in Hyannis. My grandfather started it 40 years ago, um, and my father's been there for 25 years, and I've been there for the last 10 years. And that's actually where I met my wife. She came in for an oil change, and uh, apparently she was happy with the service because we have four <laughs> kids. <laughs> nice. And, uh, we're married, so, um, and we're raising our family in Barnstable now. So in 2022... I actually ran for this seat as well. The incumbent is now in his fourth term. I was hoping to stop him at three, but unfortunately we didn't make it happen. In 2022, I got in really late. I had never been involved in politics. I think pretty typically, you know, I was aware of politics, but not involved at mm -hmm. all. A lot of people mm -hmm. pay attention to some of the things that are going on, but they don't feel like they can actually participate in that actively. So I got tired of just kind of sitting on the sidelines and watching everything go in the wrong direction. Now, so was I, it because of that that it's, that spurred you into politics, seeing the issues, or was it for some other reason? Well, like I said, I'd always been aware of things that were going on. I'd always had an interest in politics, but certainly what we've witnessed in the last few years acted as a catalyst. Mm -hmm. Government overreach on a lot of different issues. And just the general, you know, again, having grown up on the Cape, watched how it's changed in the last 30 years, just watching everything go in the wrong direction, honestly, 
and watching our leaders not actually lead on these issues and solve any of these problems. So I felt, you know, the desire to jump in, the passion to try to make a difference. And I got my wife's blessing, which obviously is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we had to figure out, you know, how are we actually going to do this? Because like I said, I had never been involved in politics in any fashion. Um, so I just got out there and started meeting people and, you know, pulled my papers. And it was it was really an eye-opening experience. And it, it really proves out the best part of our political system, that an average person can get involved and can make a difference. Um, I, you know, I mean, I met state representatives, state senators, Congress people, the governor, you know, I met all these people that I otherwise never would have um, just as a mechanic, you know, making a living, raising my family, you know, but that proves out how really, the, like I said, the best part of our political system that the average person can get involved and can make a difference. Yeah, for sure. And I think we're going to see a lot more of people like you because, you know, we've just been living the American dream, you know, having our own businesses, working, raising our kids. Meanwhile, the politicians that we've entrusted to do the job have not been doing the job. So it's our job to step in. And so I appreciate that you're in the race, of course. Absolutely. uh, Yeah, that's an important perspective to keep. You know, the politicians that we have elected, they don't have our interests in mind. They generally have special interests in mind. Mm. And, you know, when you're working and raising a family and just trying to keep up with the bills and make everything work, it's sometimes you put your head down and you're not really paying too much attention. And that passes you by. But I think it's important for all of us to step back and take a look at what's happening and, you know, address it instead of just saying, there's nothing I can do about it. All right. So let's get into some of these issues yeah. that uh, I was going through your website. There's a, you, your legislative agenda is extensive. It's detailed. It's really good. I figure we just dive right in to the most boring part, budgeting. <laughs> so one Boring, thing, but important. Very important. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, I've never managed billions of dollars like the Massachusetts government. Like, I don't know. what Do you know what the budget is? Uh, $54 billion, I believe. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we've got a lot of pharmaceutical companies in Boston, so it's way more than most other states oh, in yeah. New England. Yeah. I've never managed billions of dollars, but I've made a budget before. It's not that difficult. But at the same time, the legislature has failed to create a uh, budget for the following fiscal year for 13 years in a row in time. Yes. Yes. They have a deadline of July 1st every year for the following fiscal year. Mm -hmm. And it's been 13 years since they filed that and passed it on time. And this past year was the exact same thing. Why? Why? Is, Is there like internal debate? Are they really struggling over the individual things in the budget? Or are they just... Or do they just not want to work? Are our politicians yeah, I mean, lazy? Yeah, I mean, and you say, you know, you've never managed billions of dollars, but the principle is the same. Whether you yeah. have $100 or a billion dollars or $100 billion, add a few zeros, it's, you know, it all works out the same way. But there are so many different special interests, again, who are vying for these funds from the state government. Um, and we see this on the local level as well. I'm also, I'm a member of the town of Barnstable's financial advisory committee, Um, So I deal with the town of Barnstable's budget as well, reviewing things and making, you know, uh, recommendations to the town council when it's requested. Um, And again, you have all these different interests and there's government funds available for different things. Everyone wants a piece of that pie. Um, I think it's important for people to remember here in Massachusetts, our state government is supermajority Democrat. So when you see gridlock on Beacon Hill... It's not because of the minority party Republicans. It's because the Democrats are not agreeing with each other. The state House, you know, House of Representatives in Massachusetts is 160 members. There's 130, 
four Democrats, one independent, and 25 Republicans. State Senate, 40 members altogether. There's 36 Democrats and four Republicans. So whatever the Democrats want to do on Beacon Hill, they can do it without even talking to the Republicans. So sometimes you'll see blame cast on the Republicans for holding things up, and that's just not accurate. Whenever you see a stalemate on Beacon Hill, it's because the Democrats are fighting amongst themselves. Um, And it really just uh, points out how broken our government is and how important it is to get more voices from the opposing party up there so we can actually affect change because the status quo is not working. What are the different factions within the Democrat Party right now? Well, certainly, just like on the national level, you have the far progressive left and you have the more conservative, you know, moderate Democrats. Mm -hmm. And we do see some infighting on some issues like the gun bills and things like that. You have the more moderate Democrats who vote against those things. Um, But ultimately, it passes no matter what, because, again, the Democrats have a super majority. Um, So, you know, really that breakdown we're seeing nationally and on the state level, those far progressive left versus the more moderate Democrats. Who are these special interests you keep alluding to? Well, I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, pharmaceutical. I mean, every business interest, every uh, healthcare industry, insurance, you know, uh, there's any number of them. And there's PACs associated with those. There's unions associated with those. You know, there's a whole host of people who are trying to influence legislation. Um, And I think it's important. You can look at, you know, campaign finance information on specific candidates and see where they're getting their funding from, what industries their donors are associated with, what unions they're getting money from. And all of that plays a role in the legislative agenda. Would you be for something like, you know how they get these these omnibus bills where they, they group together all kinds of funding that seemingly don't have any relation to each other? Would you be for something, some people have proposed, you know, let's just vote on the one specific thing so you're not grouping something like healthcare with something like we're Christians and abortion. We, I'm not grouping you anything, but like things that are, we believe are murder. So, and that applies to all, every issue. How would you, what would you think about something like that? Yeah. I mean, I'm generally not a fan of those omnibus bills. Like you said, you know, these bills that are hundreds of pages long, um, especially because there's very little time for legislators to actually review these bills if they decide they want to take it to a vote, that can be done, you know, within a day. Right. Um, they can present the bill and vote on it. You know, there's very little time that's guaranteed for review. Um, so that's something that I certainly would advocate to change. And generally, I think we need shorter bills rather than longer bills. If you want to address a specific issue, just, you know, it can be one sheet of paper. That's your specific issue and vote on it up and down. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather see more bills that are shorter than fewer bills that are hundreds of pages long. Yeah, and less legalese. Like, trying to read these bills, I can't understand it. Like, at all, you need a lawyer in order to, like, to break down and parse through it. Right. Like, you got to diagram these sentences. That's the big problem with a lot of legislation now, um, you know, because there's so much legislation already on the books. You know, a lot of the newer bills are just, you know, strike out section, blah, 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 of the acts of whatever year, you know. That always confused me. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to reference back previous law and it's a game, you know, and it makes it difficult for the public to consume that information and actually understand it. Yeah, I think that's intentional. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So you said you would, uh, on your website, you would support an official audit of the legislature. Why do you support that? 
Well, the new auditor, who's a Democrat, was elected in 2022. She's a former legislator. She was in the House and the Senate. Um, Desaglio is her last name, and she has proposed a audit of the legislature. Good for her. Um, yes, first time in over a hundred years that the legislature would be audited. Wow! wow. Um, it has happened before, so there is constitutional authority to do that. Um, but 1922 was the last time it actually happened in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, okay. yes. Every state doesn't have an auditor like that. Massachusetts is kind of you know unique in that way. Um, because it is a constitutional office mm-hmm. of auditor. So she's proposed that, and she's been fighting for that, um, and it's actually on the ballot, I believe, to be voted on by the voters, um, because the legislature's been pushing back on it. And you I have wonder to wonder why. why they don't want anyone looking deeply into what they're actually doing. Mm. You know, they have all their sessions, closed door, committee meetings, all these. It's all done in secret. Um, and I'm not in favor of that sort of process. I'd like everything to be open, accessible to the public. Um, there's all kinds of rules in place that prevent access by the public to see what the legislature is actually doing on a day-to-day basis. And that needs to change. And if the auditor's office can actually perform their duty, then that provides the public with a lot of information. And I think that's why there's such a disconnect between the people and the ruling class, the politicians, these, I mean, even the minority leader, Republican minority leader has been there for 30 years. Like, it's just, it's a career now. All of, all, it's all career politicians, whether on the left or right. And on the left, you've got really awful ideas that will lead to terrible consequences. And on the right, you've got really soft, squishy rhinos who won't stand up for anything and will say they believe in, you know, life at conception or two genders. But when it comes to actually voting on it, they will vote for uh, for transgender surgeries on minors or they will give money to Planned Parenthood, which I'm referencing back to previous bills that Republicans representatives have voted in favor of uh, just because of Democrat um, pressure. There's a disconnect because I don't think the people are predominantly Democrat in Massachusetts. That's my personal opinion. Part of the reason is because the Massachusetts legislature is currently exempt from the Freedom of Information Act, which you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Like, what could their excuse possibly be to be exempt from that? Yeah, I'm not really sure what their rationale is for that, but um, it is in Massachusetts general law, you know, the section that uh, governs Freedom of Information Act explicitly exempts the legislature from the provisions of that bill. Um, it applies to everyone except the legislature, and, you know, the state government basically is exempt. So, um, again, it's another tool to keep the public in the dark about what's actually going on, um, things that happen behind closed doors, correspondence that's sent to and from legislators. Um, and I'm not about that. I'm all about an open process. The public the public is the boss of our legislators. You know, it's not the party leaders. It's not the Senate president. It's not the, um, you know, House majority leader or anything else. It's the people who elect them who are the boss of our legislators, and they deserve to know what's going on. Um, And that's why I certainly would file legislation. Whether or not it would go anywhere is another story, but I would certainly stand up and fight for legislation to remove that exemption um, because I think everyone has a right to know what's going on on Beacon Hill. Agreed, and I think that uh, we've stood down for so long, and we fear the government now in Massachusetts. You talk to anybody, they're, they're afraid of what Maura Hilly's doing. They're afraid of what the woke progressives are doing. And that's, like you said, that's not how it's supposed to be. The government should be afraid of the people that if they do something that's so egregiously wrong, they can be taken out. 
and I think that we as conservatives, we as people who uh, believe in the Constitution and believe in America, we should say we shouldn't put up with this anymore. We should stand up. Anybody who's considered running who is a conservative, do it. Just go Absolutely. for it. Absolutely. Throw like, your hat in the ring. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, constitutionally, I think a lot of people forget the Constitution is not a restriction on the people. It's a restriction on the government. It protects the rights of the people from the government. Um, so when we think about these things that are going on, it's important to remember the government is the one whose rights are limited, not the people. Um, so we need to stand up and fight for those rights and, you know, not accept what's going on when we know that it's wrong. Yeah, and the rights aren't, they're not granted by the government. The Constitution doesn't grant the rights. They just outline what they already are because they're given to us. They're inalienable by our creator, as the right. Declaration said. So one of those rights is uh, the Second Amendment that they put in there for a reason. We had Toby Leary on our podcast to talk about the crazy gun bill that I'm sure you know about that was yes. passed in the House, and now it's going on to the Senate. And again, they're talking about it behind closed doors. Um, you support the Second Amendment. You said that on your website. And uh, what do you think the most egregious part of this bill is? Oh, there's so many. And again, it's, you know, an omnibus bill. Like you said, it's 140 pages or whatever it is at this point. You know, they changed it a little bit. Yeah, it from started the original as version. HD 4420, and it's gone through like a bunch of different changes. And then now there's someone in the Senate who's going to be drafting their own version. Right. It's yes. The Senate will draft its own version. The House passed it as 4139. Um, but the Senate will come up with its own version. And once that passes, which I'm sure it will, again, because of the number of Democrats in the chamber... Um, then both chambers will reconcile those bills and pass a final version, or vote on a final version, I should say. Um, so, yeah, there's so many provisions in that that, you know, really trample on our rights to keep and bear arms. And the Second Amendment's clear anyway. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So if you want to strictly think about it in a constitutional sense, then any restriction on owning firearms is an infringement upon that right. Um and that bill specifically, um, you know, it implements all kinds of undefined burdensome regulations on the training that's required to get a license to carry, on the requirements of gun retailers, um, you know, the licensing process for retailers, how they store the firearms on site. You know, there's, and they're all undefined. There's no clear uh, regulations in there. It just says that there will be more regulations. It doesn't say what exactly it is. So... And, you know, having unclear legislation, it's really the worst kind of legislation because it should be clearly defined what the government is trying to do when they pass a bill. And then it can be judged as whether or not it's constitutional. But if it's unclear what the language even means, that makes it a lot murkier to actually determine what's going on um, until it's actually implemented and people's rights have already been, you know, uh, trampled on. Yeah, it's one thing to for to principally be wrong and say, you know, at least make it a good bill. Like, at least make it things that, you know, make sense and that aren't wishy-washy, like you said. Like, at least do that so we can debate about it and talk about it. And right. even Toby talked about it when we had him on, and he's like, if a bill makes somebody a criminal overnight, it's not a good bill. Oh, absolutely not. And, you know, Toby certainly is, you know, more educated on the nuances of it than I am. He's very knowledgeable on those things. So, um, you know, I wouldn't presume to speak more intelligently on him than him on that. Um, and I think that's something critical for our politicians to understand as well. It's that, you know, me as a state senator, I'm not an authority on all of these issues. I rely on people who are authorities, mm. someone like Toby Leary, um, you know, people who are involved uh, 
in that and who live it. I mean, he studies it. He knows it back and forth. You know, I would, I would rely on people like that to inform my position on these things um, in conjunction, obviously, with the constitutional principles. At the end of the day, everything I would support has to be aligned with the federal constitution and the state constitution because that's the oath of office that you take as a legislator, governor, you know, whatever position you hold. Yeah. Refreshing, <laughs> for sure. I mean, yeah. you don't hear any, I mean, a lot of people just won't even talk about the Constitution. You know, they get so focused on the issues, and the issues are important, but again, at the end of the day, again, you swear your right hand, you take an oath, and that oath shouldn't be something that's like, oh, you know, I just, it's just a formality, it's something we do. Like, no, that's a legitimate oath to the people, and I think some of these people we should consider taking, making them be accountable to that oath because you took an oath to the Constitution, which says the Second Amendment. And that's what, again, Toby was talking about. He's obviously, we could Absolutely, go on Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, if somebody takes an oath and violates that oath demonstrably, then there there are processes in place to remove those people from office, and that would be something to consider. Yeah, politicians are not elected necessarily. They're elected by the people, but they're not elected to... They're, re- they're elected to represent the Constitution because the reason we have representatives and it's not a democracy mob rule and the 51% rules is because the people can be fickle. The people can be wrong. I know as a, like you might get people, libertarians mad when you say that, but the majority can be wrong. So you elect a representative to kind of be a barrier between, um, between the, the people's will and total anarchy. You know, he's there to kind of, you know, the tough job of taking taking the crap from everybody, um, both good and bad. Absolutely. And that's why we have a republic, a yes. constitutional yes. republic rather than a democracy. Yeah. So we're here to represent the Constitution because sometimes the will of the people will violate the Constitution. Right. And you could argue, yeah, there are, there are more people than not in Massachusetts who favor a total gun ban or because the, the bill bans semi-automatic rifles and entire class of guns. But are we accountable to the people or to the Constitution? You're elected by the people, but what are you accountable to? The Constitution. So you Absolutely. have to uphold the Constitution. Yeah, it's it's a nuance, but it's it, it's not something that's talked about, I, I don't think, quite enough. And our state government, it, it seems like our state government doesn't like conservatives. It's pretty obvious. But in general, it doesn't seem like they like our, the citizens of our state. With the way they favored illegal aliens, it, it just it just boggles my mind. It, we have given the illegals ability to drive, thus giving them the ability to vote under our current system and laws. And as of right now, some some of them are actually living at the Cape Cod uh, military base for free, for free. Yet some Massachusetts veterans have been kicked out of low-income housing in favor of illegal aliens. Why does our state government favor illegal aliens over the citizens of its own state? That's a good question. And the whole situation with the migrants, you know, it's turned into a complete disaster and it's because of bad policy. You know, obviously the ultimate problem is the federal government ignoring our law down at the border, allowing people to come in unchecked. You know, they give them a court date seven years in the future and say, we'll see you then. With an Xbox and a gift card. and a Right, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, all kinds of benefits, you know, go wherever you want to go and, you know, hopefully you'll show up to this court date. Um, so, you know, but here in Massachusetts, obviously we can't control that. You know, on the state level, we can't control what the federal government's doing. Um, but here in Massachusetts, the progressive left has implemented laws that incentivize these people to come to our state. Um, And we've seen that through the quote-unquote Family Mobility Act, which allowed undocumented people to get driver's licenses. Um, 
We've seen that through the misapplication of the right to shelter law, which was intended for Massachusetts residents, citizens, um, you know, when it was enacted about 40 years ago. Um, and that, you know, all of these things coming together have really displaced Massachusetts citizens and legal residents in favor of these illegally present people. Um, and that's a big problem. And we've seen that all across the Cape, you know, at uh, Joint Base Cape Cod, in Bourne at a hotel, in Yarmouth at a hotel. Um, there were some out in East Ham briefly. Um, they, so they've been all over the Cape and it's uh, it's displacing our own people. Like I said, we already have a housing crisis. We have a shortage of resources and energy issues and infrastructure issues, and that just compounds those problems. So, and then the Governor Healy, you know, in the original statement was, we have to house these people no matter what. We have an obligation under the Right to Shelter Act. But then once it started getting out of control, she decided, well, there's going to be this artificial cap of 7,500 families. And she's actually been sued by, again, the progressive left is actually suing her over that. She's not woke enough. The, the left Exactly right. You can't put a cap on that. Um, and, I mean, they have a point. You can't have your cake and eat it, too. You yeah. can't say, on the one hand, we have to house everyone who comes into the state, and then on the next, you know, a couple months later say, well, we're going to cap it at this number. What happens when leftist ideology hits reality? <laughs> yes. Yeah, you have to, you know, I mean, follow the statute. You can't just decide what you're going to do. Um, so that that's the big problem. And, you know, I would be in favor of amending the right to shelter law so it's, you know, clarified. It was intended for Massachusetts citizens, but um, that should be clarified in the legislation um, so that it can't be misapplied like it has been. Um, and anything that uh, displaces Massachusetts citizens is a problem, obviously, you know, especially our most vulnerable people who are living in places that they really shouldn't be, you know, hotels and things, you know, accommodations that, you know, citizens shouldn't be living in, but that's all that's available. Um, I'm sure you guys know here on the Cape, there's not a lot of options for housing. And that's only gotten worse in recent years. And it will continue to get worse unless we change these policies. Mm -hmm. How do you differ from uh, Julian Sear on this issue, the one you're going against? Well, Senator Sear has certainly uh, been supportive of legislation to allow these migrants to come into the state. Um, and we saw this demonstrated in the during the 2022 election, actually, because some of these migrants showed up on Martha's Vineyard. Um, and Senator Sear, you know, it's very difficult to get him to show up anywhere. But the next day he was there on Martha's Vineyard to get those people out of there, um, you know, and they came over to the Cape and they were housed here for a while. And, you know, when it's unknown where they ever ended up anyway, but, um, you know, that's the only place that, you know, they didn't want to keep these migrants. I know all, yeah. all the rich people who had like the no human is illegal sign in their front yard. And then they, and like illegal aliens show up and it turns like no trespassing. It's like, right. No. Yeah. Right. Um, which like I mean, I, standard. yeah, I don't want to disparage the people of Martha's Vineyard. I mean, people, when they showed up, you know, the average people in the community there helped them because, you know, I don't, I, in one sense, I can't blame people for wanting to come here. You know, you need to follow the proper channels, you know, that you come here illegally, then you don't belong here. But I don't blame people for wanting to come to Massachusetts for a better life, but our policies cannot encourage them to do so the wrong way. Um, so I think it's really critical to separate that because, I mean, the left, whenever you talk about this issue, the other side always wants to paint you as, you know, you just hate these people, you're a racist, you're this, you're that. That's not what it's about. It's not about the individual people. It's about our policies. 
Um, you know, I'm very sympathetic to people who want a better life for their families. I mean, we all want that, but there's a proper way to do it. And if you come here the improper way, you know, there's a price to pay for that. And you don't belong here if you're not here legally. And at a point, it becomes enabling, too, in terms of if you love somebody, you can't allow them to do something that's harmful to them. You look at um, these hotels in New York City, we did a video on it, and it's sad. Like, the conditions in those hotels, like, they're letting them get away with anything. Like, they're drinking, there's kids, there's the human trafficking issue that is a whole nother thing. And it's sad. It really is sad to see the people in conditions like that. And we just, we have a governor and we have a legislature that just seemingly... They actually don't see them as human. They see them as just almost like cattle to just bounce around and, and, and throw different places. And I think that we have, as conservatives, a more generous and a more charitable view because the government clearly isn't putting them in places that are good for them, and they're using them as political pawns, really. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, they do end up being political pawns. Yeah. Um, and those games are played on both sides. But, you know, here in Massachusetts, you know, it's the Democratic legislation that's allowing this to happen. Um, and even, you know, it's still pending now, but Senator Sear has been very supportive of a bill to make Massachusetts a sanctuary state. Um, it was first introduced when he was a freshman senator. He's been supportive of him, of it ever since. We're not a shank- sanctuary state. I thought we were. We, we were are not a sanctuary state. <laughs> okay, no, can there you are some the difference. The, so the definition sanctuary state versus what the right to shelter law actually means. Well, the right to shelter law was intended for, like I said, Massachusetts, Massachusetts okay. citizens who, you know, prime and by statute, you know, families or pregnant women who don't have, you know children who are already born, um, as a way to keep those people from being on the streets. Um, that was signed into law when uh, Governor Dukakis was in office in the 80s, and it never was applied to new arrivals in the state until the past couple of years, um, because the intention, that's not what it was for. Um, so, you know, it's been used as an excuse, you know, the Democratic Party, the supermajority who runs the state, they've used that law, misapplied that law to allow these people to come in and give them housing. Um, and I mean, we have homeless people living in our communities who can't get housing. Um, people living in the woods, people living in their cars, um, and they're, again, being displaced in favor of these illegal migrants. Um, and that's a big problem. And it's, you know, again, a misapplication of the law and almost intentionally so. You know, the law is not vague like they're trying to uh, make it out to be. It specifically states who it applies to and who it doesn't apply to. Um, So the fact that it's being used for these new arrivals in the state, that's just not how it was drafted. So we know it's bad now. So what would making us a sanctuary state, what would that actually do in terms of changing the the way the policy works here? Well, so there's all kinds of things that have been, you know, eroded over the years, even like agreements between local sheriff departments and ICE, you know, for removing violent illegals who are here, you know, people who commit crimes while they're here illegally. Um, you know, all of those agreements have gone away. Um, you know, the, these things are happening even without passing that sanctuary state legislation, but that will really just give the state free reign to continue these policies um, and, you know, make it legal, quote-unquote, for the state to implement these policies. Um, And it just, it again, displaces our own people, and it has a bad effect on our communities. It makes the quality of life for all of us worse um, when we accept these things. And it's just, it's not a positive thing for any of us. 
So what would be your biggest solution? Like your your I mean, obviously it's not a one stop thing, but what is it that you're offering that's so different? Well, certainly I wouldn't support any of those things that he's supporting. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's really the most critical thing because it needs to be clear that you know me if I you know when I get elected, um, like I said, we've got four Republican state senators out of forty right now, so I would be number five. Um, so the most critical thing is just one not to support the policies that Senator Sear is currently supporting. So, and then obviously promote policies to push things back in the right direction, but it's going to be a struggle to get those things passed Mm -hmm. through the legislature, obviously. But if we have less senators on Beacon Hill supporting these bad policies, I mean, that's where we have to start. Obviously, we have to start going back in the right direction. Yeah, and you'll have an opportunity to draft your own version of these bills as they come yes. through. I mean, when it's just five of you, I don't know how well it's going to do, but like, at least you at have least that ability. At least it's something, you know. Well, you have you the voice and you have to, right, yeah. absolutely. And that's what the I'm people saying. People are able to speak. Yes. What is your opinion of the the wind farms being built off the coast of Martha's Vineyard? There's all kinds of debates being had about this, whether it's a good idea or not. Do you see in, uh, see the push as to this green ed- energy idea, shifting away from fossil fuels and all these things? Is that a is that a good idea, or is it just hurting Americans? Or what is your perspective on it? In general, um, all of the above on energy. If it makes sense and it's a viable solution and a viable energy source, then that's great. I'm all for it. Um, I don't buy into this you know, idea that we need to abandon fossil fuels or the world's going to end. You know, obviously, we all want to be good stewards of the environment. We want a clean environment, all of that. That's not in dispute at all. But um, I don't think that it's, you know, again, you've got people saying that the world's going to end in 10 years if we don't. They've been saying that. All electric. They've been saying that for 30 (laughs) years. So, um, you know, and the wind farm specifically, I think, you know, again, there's multiple layers because the turbines themselves are in federal jurisdiction. So that part of it was pushed through by the Biden administration. They greenlit that whole thing as soon as they came into I wonder office. if Obama had anything to do with that. <laughs> well, I mean, it all started, you know, years ago. But, yeah, okay, um, okay. Under when Trump was president, it kind of stalled out. And then when Biden got in, it really got the green light. So the turbines themselves, that's a federal issue. But then where the power is coming in to Massachusetts, I mean, that's a local and a state issue. So there's three separate projects out there right now. The power cables for those are all coming into Barnstable, my hometown, um, the biggest town in the Cape and Islands district. Um, And there's, like I said, three separate projects. They're all in different phases. Um, And there's a lot of concern about the amount of power that's going to be coming in and coming through our beaches, through our residential neighborhoods, um, into substations in residential neighborhoods with, you know, we're talking about huge amounts of power. And these substations are going to have on site, you know, hundreds of thousands of gallons of dielectric oil, which is a hazardous material. Mm. So um, there's a lot of environmental concerns associated with that. And a lot of people don't consider that, you know, you, they try to push this image of turbine, wind turbines, solar energy, it's all green, there's no effect on the environment, and it's a complete mischaracterization of the whole industry. Um, And a lot of it goes back to, you know, again, government subsidies, and there's a lot of things attached to that and why they're pushing that. Um, But it's not, really not any greener than fossil fuels, because you have the mining process for these materials is extremely hazardous to the local environment, which we don't see that here, but you know, they're mining these precious materials to make batteries and solar panels and everything else overseas, and it totally devastates those local communities environmentally. 
Um, and then disposal, when these things have passed their viable life, um, there's no viable disposal of these. They pile up hazardous waste again. And these substations in Barnstable that they're proposing, um, that if there's any sort of leak or a fire or anything else on those sites, it could have a devastating effect on our groundwater. The Cape has a sole source aquifer, um, and the sites that they're proposing in Barnstable, if there is a leak, it would go directly into our groundwater, and that would affect the entire Cape. So oh my God. that's something that there that's is a, a group— huge concern. It's a tremendous concern, yeah, for the entire Cape. Like I said, not just Barnstable, but there is a big group in Barnstable that's fighting back on that. Um, and the state is kind of, you know, squashing those concerns and just trying to push it through. Um, but there is a group in Barnstable that's kind of fighting back against that. Um, and we'll see what happens. Again, the people need to raise up their voices and pay attention to what's going on. Um, instead of being kind of fed this narrative that's not accurate. Um, like I said, I'm all about viable energy, whatever's best, whatever makes sense economically. I mean, we can't bankrupt ourselves over this either. That's the other thing. It has to be economically viable. Um, and a lot of people point to Europe with their offshore wind, but Europe is very reliant on France's nuclear energy as a fail-safe. Um, they use a lot of natural gas. So, I mean, this misnomer that wind energy is, you know, the future. It, it's really not. In my opinion, I don't view it as a viable um, alternative. It certainly can supplement in certain places, but it will never replace other forms of energy. Yeah. So this ties into another issue. Utility costs, they're going up, 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 and people are concerned. Obviously, this is a big issue, like right, hundreds of dollars. My parents have a, a few homes in Plymouth, and I know it's not your district, but all over the state, they're just going up. Like it's it's absurd. How does that tie into that issue of rising utility costs and what can we even actually do to fix that? Well, we need to make, you know, viable energy sources available. And, you know, Governor Healy, when she was the attorney general, she prevented a natural gas pipeline from coming into Massachusetts. A few of them, I think, too, yeah. Uh, yeah, I believe it was more than one project. But, you know, uh, so she prevented the flow of cheaper natural gas into the state. Um you know, citing environmental concerns and, you know, the typical talking points, but now they're completely ignoring that with the wind energy. So, you know, they talk out of both sides of their mouths on these issues, and ultimately it ends up costing us, the citizens, taxpayers, more money. Um, you know, I know my utility bills have been going, everybody's utility bills have been going up, um, and there's this uh, false notion that those are going to go down as a result of the wind turbines that are going up. That's I don't see that being the case. Um, there's going to be significant maintenance costs associated with that. The power that is transmitted, it's not going to come. They were estimating seven cents a kilowatt hour. That's not going to happen. Um, so I think we need to be honest with people and clear and provide as many different viable sources as possible and not prevent the influx of that into the state. You know, New England has the highest energy costs in the country. Um, and the Cape certainly has even higher energy costs than the average in New England. So we need to make those things available um, instead of kind of shoehorning ourselves into this pre-decided yeah. pre, um, you know, agenda. Um, our decision should not be based on an agenda. It should be based on whatever is best for the people who live here. Yeah, and why can't we just bring back American innovation? Like, we have smart people here. Let's let's put them to work. Like, I think people, so many businesses are shackled by these regulations that they put on. And there's a place we do need to be good stewards of the environment. But at some point, too, um, 
we need to pay. We need to be able to pay for these things. We need. We have the best resources under our grounds more than any other country, but we ship off um, carbon emissions to other countries and act like, oh, we're such angels over here. But I think that if we just did it ourselves and, and innovated, and I mean, that's that's a me thing, but I don't know why we don't just encourage innovation in, in businesses. And you see businesses are leaving Massachusetts because of what the things Maura Healy has done. Well, because of policy, you know, tax policy and everything else, you know, this millionaire's tax that they, you know, quote unquote, had passed, you know, it's driving people out of the state, you know, businesses, wealthy individuals are being driven out of the state because there's no incentive to stay here. Um, and we're seeing as a result of that, you know, they were promising higher tax revenues, but we actually have lower tax revenues. Um, so that's, you know, again, these policies that are being implemented, we're being sold a bill of goods that's not the reality. Right. Um, and we need to go the other direction. Going back to the fact that you're a mechanic, I, w- I wanted to ask a question about that. So I was curious, only 14 states in America require car inspections. I know it's totally derailment, but this yep. is just a kind of a nuanced <laughs> question. It's more tongue-in-cheek question. I've, I've always, I've, I've been curious about this. In your professional opinion, should Massachusetts eliminate the car inspection? And would you add that to your legislative agenda if you had the support? The state inspection regulations in Massachusetts, there's two parts of that. There's a safety part and there's an emissions part. Um, any vehicle that is new newer than 15 model years has to pass the emissions test. Um, So if your check engine light is on, you don't pass inspection. That has to be addressed. If your car is younger than 15 years old, if it's older than that, then it doesn't matter. But every vehicle that's on the road, whether it's a Model A or it's a brand new Tesla, you know, it has to pass the safety part of it. So that's your emergency brake, your suspension, your steering, tires, things like that. Um, And I think it is important to maintain the safety component of it because we don't want unsafe vehicles on the road. Um, The emissions thing I go kind of back and forth on. I mean, it's kind of arbitrary. Again, once it's 15 years old, they exempt it from that. So what does it really accomplish? I mean, it costs people a lot of money sometimes to fix vehicles because of an emissions-related failure that doesn't actually really affect how the vehicle operates. Um, so that, I mean, I'd be willing to look at that from the emissions standpoint. The safety component, I would not be in favor of removing that, because um, I think it is critical to keep our roads safer. Um, and I'm licensed as a state inspector. I don't actively have a state inspection station at our repair shop, but I am licensed. I took the course. You know, I know the regulations. And the safety component is important. Um, but it is kind of arbitrary, the emissions part of it. Mm-hmm. it it could be changed, and I'd be open to that. And, you know, tying in with vehicles, too, you know, the governor just proposed all kinds of uh, tax increases, possible tax increases related to excise, um, vehicle mileage tax has been proposed. What? Um, so, yes, this mileage is Mileage tax. Yes, that's been proposed in the past, uh, <laughs> but it's getting some more traction now because the governor, as, again, we're losing tax revenue as a result of these policies. So just and add we're more spending taxes. exactly. We're spending more money on the migrants who are coming here. So we have, you know, we're going in two different directions, lower revenues and more expenses. So the budget that's going to be coming out for fiscal twenty five, I mean, there's a lot of things that need to be squared in that budget because it's gone in a totally different direction than, than a couple of years ago when we had a four billion dollar surplus. Um, you know, we're looking at a deficit now. So, and I've been hearing more and more about, you know, mileage taxes on vehicles and increased excise taxes. And, you know, in the governor's proposal, she's trying to put that on local municipalities, um, municipalities, you know, towns, cities, whatever. 
will have the option to increase excise taxes or increase meals taxes or increase room taxes at hotels. Um, and, you know, I'm all about local control of issues. I think that's, you know, critical. We should keep more control on the local level rather than the state level. But um, I'm not in favor of raising those taxes at this point. People are already overtaxed. We should not be taxing our citizens more. Yeah, I mean, it's so obvious. If you want to get more tax revenue, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you want more tax revenue, lower the taxes, thus incentivizing more entre- entrepreneurs to come to your state. There'll be more innovation, more people will get hired, and you will get more tax revenue than you know what to do with. I mean, I'm sure they'll find a, I'm sure they'll find a way to waste it. But um, right, well, that's <laughs> the thing. I mean, we need more responsible spending, and mm-hmm. we need more, res- um, you know, incentivizing bills to keep people in the state. You know, like I mentioned, the millionaires tax that was passed in 2022 by ballot initiative that's driven people out of the state. So the premise of gaining, you know well-to-do people, quote-unquote, paying their fair share. Um, That's just driven people out of the state and actually reduced tax revenues. Yeah, because rich people already pay the most in taxes, which completely destroys the left's pay-their-fair-share argument. Because, I mean, even if the percentage is smaller, they make so much money that that ends up, the amount of tax revenue that they're giving is, like, so much more. Well, the the gross amount is huge, yes, absolutely. Um, And there's a lot of things that go along with that, too. When you have these businesses in the state, you know, employing people, there's taxes associated with that. You know, it's not necessarily about the individual tax rate. It's about what is being contributed overall by that individual, by businesses that they might have, even by their purchasing. You know, if you have a wealthy individual and he's purchasing, you know, a Lamborghini or something, the state's getting tax revenue from that. And that's employing somebody in the state to sell him a car and fix the car. And there's a lot of things that go along with that instead of just whacking somebody on their income tax. Yeah, we don't need more taxes in this state. I mean, we, we've had enough tax Massachusetts, they call it. So Yes. And, and- <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. And I, I certainly would be looking closely at all taxes, fees, all of that stuff, because there, there are plenty of things that can be cut, and I would be in favor of cutting whatever's not needed. So you just said you're in favor of uh, more local government, which is awesome. It's a, it's a it's a really good thing to have uh, the local municipalities have a lot of power uh, because they're most they're closest to the people. Uh, how would how could you as a state senator work with your the municipalities within your district to actually get some of these things done? Because if there are going to be a lot of things that for a while at least until we can get more Republicans into office, there are going to be a lot of things that you just are just not going to be able to work on the state level. What can you kind of, what can you shift to the municipality level? Right. Well, again, you know, tax revenues and uh, I mean, I'm all in favor of keeping the money on the local level to begin with rather than sending it to the state and then begging the state to send it back. <laughs> right. You know? Interesting. Okay. Um, so I certainly would like to look at a lot of the regulations regarding state funding for local aid and try to keep that money on the local level instead of sending it to the state. Um, you know, the way our schools are funded through Chapter 70 aid, um, the way our housing policy is on the state level. I'd like to, you know, housing, to touch back on that again, I know sure. we briefly yeah. touched on it. Um, you know, chapter 40 is the housing policy in the state. I would review every section of that chapter. 40B is the affordable housing program. Um, I think it's been a disaster. I mean, that's been in place for, I think, 60 years, and the housing problem is worse than it's ever been. You know, 40B really is kind of an end around to allow development that normally wouldn't happen, um, that the localities may or may not even want to happen, but it's an end around for developers to go past 
the town go directly to the state and get approval for projects that they want to do. As long as they have a certain percentage of quote-unquote affordable units there, they can pretty much do whatever they want, whether it complies with local zoning or anything else. So is the, is the idea that when a lot of people come to an area, when you have a lot of developers building new homes and there's so much more people, that is, a, is the idea that that is what jacks the price up and that causes the crisis? Or what exactly is causing like the, high, the, the housing crisis? Why are the interest rates so high? Why are the costs so high? I mean, the, in my neighborhood, a house just sold for $815,000 and it's your average three-bedroom, two-bath two house. Right. Like why? Well, there's so many components to that. And like, obviously the interest rates, that's a federal thing. Um, but, you know, the, in, it's been kind of languishing for so long that these problems have all compounded on each other. Obviously, here on the Cape, you have, you know, second homes and rental homes and things like that. And that's been the case forever, but that's become much more of an industry in recent years. And that's something that, you know, has certainly contributed to the rise in housing costs um, and the lack of long-term rentals in favor of short-term rentals. Um, And we've seen a lot of corporations actually buying up properties on the Cape to use as short-term rentals. If you drive especially further down the Cape, you know, past... Dennis into, you know, all the way to Provincetown, you'll see a lot of signs out in front of, you know, single family homes for these corporations that have bought those properties as short term rentals. So that takes stock out of the local supply. Those houses are not available for families, you know, uh, people who are starting out who need a place to live. So that jacks up the prices as well. Um, And I think we need to really look at, I mean, for me, I'm in favor generally of lowering taxes. But on something like that, when you have a corporation coming in and buying up single-family homes to use it as a short-term rental, you know, revenue business, um, you know, I would I would consider, you know, allowing local towns to implement a higher property tax on those properties that are owned by a corporation, yeah. you know, taking those properties out of the housing stock to try to dissuade companies from you know, doing buying that. too many. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, just crony capitalism. Like we, the reason we have capitalism is such, we believe it's such a good system is that it promotes families, not huge corporations so that billionaires can go have nice vacations and they buy, like like Bill Gates buying up farmland all across the country. I mean, that's I know that's a separate issue, but that's an example of it. Like, no, we don't want that. Like we shouldn't let these people do like personally i don't think we should be letting these people do that and similar for sure let the towns tax them favor a family with two parents in the home that's i don't think that's a bad thing at all absolutely yeah and i mean you know that is something that the state would have to work on to allow towns to do that you know to have you know sort of a progressive tax rate where you have corporations purchasing multiple properties if they own say you know more than 3 properties in the same town you can charge them a higher tax rate on the property um, that That's certainly something I would look at. And that was actually proposed. There was a candidate in 2022, a Democrat who was running against Sarah Peake, actually, in the primary. And he had proposed something similar to that as a possible option to try to reduce the number of short-term rentals and kind of readjust the housing market. And that's only one component of it, obviously, but that's something that we certainly should look at. Um, and just, you know, I'm in favor of more development, but it has to be sensible. It has to make sense. Um, I'm in favor of density, again, where it makes sense. I mean, sewering is an issue that every town on the Cape is dealing with right now. But, you know, we need to put 
density of housing in places that have access to sewering, have access to public transportation, places that are already densely developed that have maybe underutilized properties along main routes, Route 28, Route 6, further down the Cape. There's all kinds of properties that are abandoned or underutilized. They're already densely developed, but not in a way that makes sense, you know. So I'm very much in favor of putting more housing in those locations, density of housing, because we do need, you know, obviously single-family homes, but we also need apartments for people, young professionals who are just starting out. They don't have a family. They don't need to rent an entire house, you know, and a lot of people don't want an entire house. They just want an apartment somewhere. So we do need, you know, a wide variety of housing stock, and we need to incentivize that. And another thing that I hear to shift issues again to education, I hear we need trades. We need people in the trades because all these jobs that we talk about, if we want to have more housing, there's going to be people working. And right now we don't even have enough people that are skilled enough to be carpenters to work on these sewage plants because we tell so many kids that we need to go to college and they need to get 200000 in debt so they can have a gender studies degree or whatever else. <laughs> so what would be your, your opinion on that in terms of opening up trade schools, things like that, um, letting the free market, you know, stop pushing college on kids and things like that? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, me as a mechanic, I certainly think that the trades are very, you know, wise field to go into for anyone, Um, you know, and I went, you know, I'm kind of in both worlds because I went off to college, you know, every, it was always pushed. You have to go to college, have to go to college, have to go to college. And I think a lot of people, you know, from my generation and certainly right up to the present day, that's always the pressure when you're in high school is you have to go get a college degree or you're not going to be successful. And that's just not the case. You know, our trade schools, you know, the new Cape Cod Tech facility is phenomenal. I went there recently with my son because he's thinking about going there. Um, And I'm encouraging him to go there. I hope he does because, you know, it's really a great option for anyone who doesn't have a clear path in mind through college. Like if you know I want to get this degree, I want to work in this field, and you actually have a plan, that's one thing to go to college and do that. But pushing kids to go to college when they don't have a clear path, like you said, it puts them in debt. Um, It puts them behind the eight ball. Whereas if you can go to a technical school, get an actual skill in high school, they have a great program. If you maintain your grades, you can actually work while you're in high school instead of actually attending classes. You know, once you're an upperclassman, you can go to work instead of going to class. So you can actually make money in your field, get yourself established. And right out of high school, you can be making really good money um, because there's such a huge demand for these trades. And I've seen it firsthand, you know, I can't hire anybody as a mechanic. I mean, we really could use somebody, but there's nobody getting into the field Um, or so few people that, you know, the competition from other shops is very difficult. Um, And that's all all the trades, you know, mechanics, carpentry, electricians, plumbing. There's a shortage of all of those. Yeah, and that's you spoke about it more individually too, but also the whole society. We need these people. We should be telling people this is like this is a valuable job. It's not just monotonous and you're you know you're working on a car underneath all day. Like those are things that people need more so than a lot of these other things. Well, right. Our our society comes to a standstill if we don't have tradespeople. I absolutely. And there's you know, it's less so than it used to be. But there used to be this conception that you know if you're in the trades, you couldn't hack it. You know, you're not smart enough to do other things. But you know, people in the trades, you got to be really smart, smart to know what you're doing to build a house, to fix a car, any of that. How could legislation tie into encouraging kids to move that way towards the trades and towards honestly just giving them their options? You know, how, what would be something that you could do? Well, I was, you know, we have 
certainly plenty of programs that you know incentivize going to college and offer assistance to go to college. Um, I would certainly like to expand assistance that's offered to go to trade schools. You know, get mm-hmm. certificates in different trades and things. So I would, I'd like to see more of that encouraged rather than going to you know a four year school to get a degree. I think it's critical to additionally incentivize you know going to get a certificate in a trade because again we need those people. And you know I would encourage the technical school, you know, here on the Cape, at least over in Harwich, you know, they have a tremendous amount of people wanting to get into that school. It's exactly the opposite from when I was in school. They were begging people to go there Um, because, again, it was kind of looked down upon wrongly. Um, And it has gone the other direction, but we, you know, we need to encourage our kids that, you know, if that's the path you want to take, there's nothing wrong with that. So on the state level, I certainly would be in favor of, you know, Directing assistance and funding towards encouraging that rather than only encouraging, you know, a four-year degree at a college. Agreed. And even um, things like nursing, like we need a lot more nurses too. And that's something I didn't even know. You don't even have to go to a four-year or I thought it was all this kinds of schooling, but... I, after like 10 months, you can get your uh, LPN and you can work at a nursing home and, and they need people there. And after like two years, you can get your nursing and then you can continue to go to school while working and while making money. And I think this is another solution to the housing affordability crisis because those are all good, high paying jobs without the college debt attached to it. So I think that just we should be encouraging kids to go. That yes, route. yes. Setting people up for success right out of high school is a great thing. And I mean, my wife is actually a nurse, um, and she wishes that she had gone to the nursing program while she was in high school. She did it after the fact. Um, but I mean, again, the local technical schools, you know, I know Upper Cape has a great nursing program. Um, that's actually where she went, but not as a high school student. She got her, you know, work done there, though. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's a great thing, and that's a great point. We should be setting our peop- our children up for success as adults um, so that they can be successful, they can stay in the community, and actually afford to live here. Shifting to another issue on the education thing, Julian Sear, your, your opponent, he uh, proposed a bill that, according to his website, when signed, quote, when signed into law, an act regarding free expression would prevent book removal due to personal or political views in public and school libraries. Further, it would empower school librarians and teachers to determine access to age-appropriate materials in school libraries. And to overturn a school librarian's selection determination, the bill would require a review process by the school committee based on clear and convincing evidence that the material is devoid of educational, library, artistic, or social value, or is not age appropriate for any student in the school. So basically reading through all that, it just makes it more difficult for school committees to be able to decide what books, and it moves it to the libraries, moves it to the teachers, who Julian Sear says have more education on deciding what books are in there anyway. What is your opinion on that? Um, Well, I'm against the bill. When I first saw it and, you know, he testified alongside Representative Moran, who has the House version of that bill, Um, and I watched their testimony. I watched some testimony from citizens who were also there or virtually participating. Um, And, you know, the provisions of that bill, it's all about taking control away from parents and from school committees. Like you said, it makes the librarians essentially, you know, a dictator in the library, you know, whatever they say is going to go because it becomes almost impossible to challenge the librarian's, you know, determination on if that book should be there. Um, And it's not about, you know, for me, it's not about, again, it's a mischaracterization by Senator Sear and others on the left that this is about, you know, 
equity, quote-unquote, and LGBTQ rights and all of that. That's not what it's about at all, and it's not about banning books either. I mean, I'm not in favor of banning books at all. It's about determining what's appropriate for a school library, though. If somebody wants to go out and buy these books on their own, then whatever, more power to you. But in a school library, we should not have material that is sexually explicit um, accessible to students. That's just, you know, basic decency as far <laughs> yeah, as I'm common concerned. Common sense, yeah. You know, whether it's LGBTQ related or it's straight, you know, it could be, you know, we don't put Playboy magazines in school libraries. So why are we advocating to have books there that explicitly describe sexual acts? Smut. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, and... Again, I'm not about banning books or, you know, censoring anything, but it's not appropriate in a school library. And the way the bill is written, you know, so that if it's not appropriate for any student who's in the school, you know, that really leaves it very open-ended, especially in high schools where, you know, the argument can be made, well, you know, the oldest student in the school, it's appropriate for them, so we're going to have it available to everyone who's in the school. Uh, It just... You know, none of it's appropriate, and that's not a decision that the school should be making. Um, It really takes the control out of parents' hands to control what their children are exposed to. And it takes the whole, you know, they are couching it as, you know, more local control by saying the librarian has control, but it takes the control out of the hands of the school committee, like you said, um, and ultimately out of the hands of the parents. Because the school committee is elected by the people, by the parents. So... If you're giving the school committee the control, thus you're giving the parents the control. Yes, and you know, uh, if you go through the whole bill, I mean, there's all kinds of things about challenging determinations that are made. But you know, while a challenge is happening, the book remains on the shelves in the school library, Um, and ultimately, you know, it's virtually impossible for that challenge to be successful the way the bill is written. Yeah, and it makes into almost like a legal issue because then you know, if they contest it, the librarian contests it, and like you said, the book stays. So it's just delaying the uh, inevitable, and it's uh, it's really sad. So in another yeah. issue, yeah, I'm gonna be honest though. It, 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 I'm gonna. It's kind of an indictment on the parents to me, to my perspective, a little bit because when the schools, the schools realize that there is a lack of parental involvement with a lot of the kids, in that's just what it seems to me. So, the the the, the parents aren't the aren't providing morals to their children or maybe aren't representing those morals at home. So those kids go to school and then they're basically just open to whatever because they're not being taught good virtues at home. They go to school and they're kind of just moldable and they're malleable. They've And we all have a sin nature. So when it's not, so when virtues aren't cultivated at home, it's the school can take advantage of it. And I think it started out, I think it started out as good with good intentions. I think the schools had good intentions. All right, let's, let's help these kids. So they added all these extra programs. And then now we have things like sex ed. I'm like, okay, that should definitely not be what the school is teaching. Like, leave that to the parents. Like, that's not up to the, that's, that's not up to the school. But you have people who come in on the left, on the woke left, who come in and co-opt something like sex ed and then make it basically pornography and sexually explicit and then it's just corrupting these kids so it's like the parent it's on it's on the parents to take back the school committees in your district but then also be very proactive and be reading over the your kids books when they bring them home like don't be very involved that's a 
that's an indictment on the parents. And I think that it, it starts, the family is the most fundamental political institution. And if we want to affect change in the local or state level, it has to start with the family. It has to start with fathers actually uh, protecting and providing for their kids, both, um, both spiritually and then also uh, educationally. Amen. Yeah, I mean, it's critical for parents to be involved. And, uh, you know, again, as a father of four kids, my oldest is in high school right now. She's a senior. The youngest is in preschool. So we kind of run the gamut there. Um, and you have to pay attention to what's going on because, you know, and, you know, I'm open to allowing, you know, older children to, um, you know, be exposed to certain ideas and make their own determinations on things, but it needs to be in a controlled way, and the school should not be pushing any agenda on these kids. That's the problem. It's turning into, this is the agenda we want these kids to be exposed to. You know, it's not about uh, teaching them how to think about things. They're trying to teach these kids what to think, and that's where the problem comes in. And when you look at books that are in school libraries, I mean, I've looked at all kinds of different articles and studies about this. You know, the most, quote-unquote, banned books from school libraries are not these books that they're referencing. They're, you know, books by conservative thinkers. And, mm-hmm. You know, those are things that are absent from school libraries, not these other books that they're talking about. Um, you know, when you actually look at the data, there's... Hardly any books, you know, conservative-leaning books in these libraries, but there's all kinds of books about Marxism and anti-racism and, you know, all these other things that are available to students, and they're not getting the opposing viewpoint. Um, And again, that's not appropriate, you know, certainly in lower grade levels. In the high school, you can have some of those ideas present because, you know, they're almost adults, so they need to start thinking about these things. But anything sexually explicit certainly does not belong in a school setting. Yeah, and like you said, they need to have both sides. There needs to be both sides. There needs to be the conservative books and the liberal books, and if they want to debate and go go for it, like, I think we should have political debates in public schools in front of high school kids. yes. Like, let them hear both sides, and they're saying, oh, well, no, you know, they're being, they can't be exposed. And it's like, don't we want kids involved in the political process? Don't we, if they can, kids can hear both sides and determine which side is spewing BS and which side is not. Generally, a lot of high school kids can tell. And I think that instead of creating an echo chamber like they're trying to create with this bill in, in the libraries, you know, let public debate happen, right? The First Amendment is in there for a reason, and we're Americans, and we should be promoting free speech. Yeah, I don't, 100%. absolutely. Side yes. thing, I don't think there are enough local debates going on between politicians. I mean, it's like, just because it's not in the national stage and you're going to have millions of people watching doesn't mean they shouldn't happen. Yeah, did like, you debate him have last? Have you ever debated? We did have one debate. Okay. Um, it was right before the election on the local NPR station. Okay. Um, so it was his home turf, you know, NPR. Um, and Did there they were, ask a lot of, like, awful questions? Like, um, no, I mean, questions, it was or? it was okay. okay. Um, you know, I won't, you know, condemn the moderator who hosted it. She's certainly a professional, and, you know, the questions were professional. But there's really, you know, especially in the last cycle, we saw a lot of Democrats refusing to debate Republicans because they didn't want to be called out on these terrible policies that they've been promoting. And I think we're going to see that this time around as well, a reluctance to debate. Certainly on the national stage, I doubt there's going to be presidential debates at all. Um, You know, I'd really be shocked if there is a presidential debate. But even on the local level, I mean, Senator Sear declined at least one other debate that was offered, um, which I accepted every offer. I went to a open forum in West Barnstable that was hosted by the Civic Association there. Senator Sear did not attend. Um, There were other politicians there as well, um, but he did not attend. Um, So really it's, you know, 
they don't want to debate because they don't want these policies laid to bear before the people. Um, and I, I'd be happy to debate, you know, him at any time and in person on the radio, you know, anything. We'll we'll host it if he wants. And Julian, if, you, that, if you're watching, <laughs> you can pick a guy from from your side that you want. It's just me and Sam. One of us will step down and and come. Out. And you're from Barnstable anyway, so you're this is affects you. I'll, I'll step out, and if you want to put your guy in asking questions too, we'll do it on the show if you want. I have I have no problem doing that well sandwich isn't in your district i'm like oh. one town well close over. enough he's close closer well that's all right you know open <laughs> yeah. invitation is nice anyway yeah, for sure i you mean know, and, the... and we'll be fair and, and, and honest and i mean absolutely you know, so. yeah no i'm i'd be happy to um i would tell you don't hold your breath <laughs> i'd be happy to do that if the senator agrees yeah yeah we're that's what we want to do i mean we're all about the first amendment on this i mean we're the sons of liberty is our name so you know we believe in the founding we believe in you know open debate and those kinds of things so we want to host any politicians anybody that's watching you know we'll have them on and hopefully we'll be fair and honest we're christians so <laughs> we should be but um another thing into this this education issue um things that have been coming up in florida and some other southern states like school choice and allowing parents to spend their taxpayer dollars that they already pay to go to different schools school choice school vouchers what is your opinion on on that um, well, I think, you know, school choice is very important. And again, the, going back to the funding mechanisms, you know, Chapter 70 is what dictates um, education funding in Massachusetts from the state. So there's really a complex process in terms of how that money is allocated. There's different formulas based on economic status of students. And, you know, if they need language assistance, there's money associated with that. There's all kinds of different variables there. And there is a process in place for school choice where a parent can put their child, you know, in a different school and have that money redirected from the school district. But it's really a burdensome process as far as how the money is actually allocated because it goes to the original school district and then the, that school district refunds it to the other school district. And it's really a overly complicated process. So for me, again, simple legislation is best. So I would certainly look at that process and I would simplify the process um, so that that Funding goes directly to the school of choice of the parent, wherever the child is going. Yeah, and even for homeschooling, like why can't it go just Well, absolutely, yes. There's a lot of homeschooling going on, especially now. Um, And absolutely that funding, you know, those parents are still paying their taxes. So that education funding should be going towards that program. Of course, yeah. Absolutely. Isn't that that property taxes that pays for the local schools? Uh, predominantly, yes, okay. property taxes. Abolish the property that. tax. Just my opinion. <laughs> just my makes us serfs, not citizens. Uh, but that's I just want to throw that in. That's a separate. <laughs> that's totally separate. That's another podcast. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think a hundred percent, and I think a lot of these schools, you know, you see the studies, and a lot of schools with less money actually do better than um. So these schools that are getting pumped. I mean, Chicago would have the best schools if sending money to schools fixed the problem. So I think. What we're teaching kids matters more than, you know, how much money we send. And obviously, you know, there's nuance to that issue. But uh, if I was a legislator, which we'll get into later. (laughs) Well, maybe someday. We'll get into that in a different podcast. Um, I'm so glad you came on. And again, I'm sure we'll invite Julian on for the podcast, too, to come on. And he wants to share his issues. Yeah, certainly. For the debate. But uh, what would be your, your quick pitch, your elevator pitch? I've said this on, like, the last few podcasts. Why should why should the, the, the citizens of Cape and Islands vote for you over Julian Sear? Well, I think if you want to change in direction, if you're not happy with the way the state is going, you need to vote differently. You know, Senator Sear represents the establishment, the supermajority who's been running the state for a long time. He's in his fourth term. 
Um, he has not solved the issues that he ran on originally in 2016. Every, by every metric, these things have gotten worse. Homelessness, housing costs, energy costs, uh, the drug epidemic, which we didn't even touch on, That's unfortunately. But, I mean, drug that's been spiraled out of control while he's been in office. And I don't lay all these things at his feet, but what he's been doing has not made any of these things better for the people of the Cape and Islands. His priorities are out of whack. Um, he's not in touch with the average person in the district. He's not representing their interests. He's not accessible to them. He does not hold regular office hours in the district. He doesn't make himself accessible to the people of the district. I will do all of those things. Those things will change with me as the state senator for the Cape and Islands. I'll hold regular office hours. If you send me an email or give me a call, I will get back to you personally. Um, you know, I'll be accessible and I'll listen to the concerns of the people and I will work collaboratively to try to find a solution for that because that's what the role of a state senator is. You know, the legislative part of it is important, but also the community part is important. Um, and I think here in Sandwich, you guys have State Representative Ixaros, who does a fantastic job with the community aspect. And I mean, that's really the model that I would follow. It's the exact opposite of what Senator Sear has been doing. He makes himself inaccessible. I will be accessible. And, you know, I'm just a regular guy raising my family here. So I want them to do well. I want everyone else's family to do well. And that's why I'm running, to make things better for our families and, you know, the residents of the Cape and Islands. Yeah, we didn't even get into the drug issue. All the fentanyl coming across the border um, causing such issues here in Massachusetts. Do you want to talk about uh, We can touch on that briefly, yeah. And, you know, that the one solution that the senator has been proposing, you know, since he got into office was these is these so-called safe injection sites, um, which to me is just completely the wrong direction. You're going to have sites where drug users can come in and use their drugs under medical supervision wow. under the premise of, well, we'll be able to save their life if they overdose. But, you know, I'm more concerned with preventing these people from doing drugs to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I'm all in favor of more funding and more resources for drug prevention. I'm not in favor of safe injection sites. I'm not in favor of decriminalizing any drugs, which is also something that he has proposed. Um, you know, decriminalizing possession of controlled substances is something that he supports. Um, and I would not be supportive of that. I think we need harsher penalties on people who, you know, peddle in drugs. Yeah. If you're possessing and certainly distributing a controlled substance, that's a very serious thing. Um, and that should be dealt with harshly, in my opinion. And it's not right now, and that's not a priority for our current state senator. Yeah. I know someone uh, through a friend of a friend who who died because he got drugs off the street that was laced with fentanyl, and yeah. he just died. And he, he had struggled with it for a while, but then it it just he he didn't mean to he didn't mean to take fentanyl. It was just laced with it because it was off the streets. These drug dealers need to be held accountable. I mean, that's uh, I mean, <laughs> if you're absolutely Sons of Liberty yeah. podcast, you're on if the, they know. They know, give them the death penalty. If they knew that there is fentanyl in these things, like, that is murder. If you knew fentanyl was in that yeah. drug and you gave it to someone and sold it to someone for your profit, that's one of the, the most evil things that you could do. Yeah. So if you're asking us. Yeah, I mean, and there's so many people, you know, I've talked to so many people here who have been directly affected by that. You know, their children have died from an overdose or, you know, there's so many people who have struggled with addiction um, and our politicians talk about the issue and say they want to help, but they don't actually implement any changes to help. You know, again, it continues getting worse year after year. 
Um, and I would work on actual solutions to make that better. I mean, it's not, again, just like the migrants, it's not to disparage the person, but there's a problem and we need to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And we need to recognize that, you know, it's not right what's going on. We need to do something else. We the people were taking power back from our government who is catering to special interests. And we're bringing it back to the people and we're doing it through people like yeah. Chris Lozon. So Absolutely. thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, do you want to promote your website or anything? Yes, about please. The certainly. Yes, plug, um, everything. plug everything. So you can reach me. My website is votelozon.com. It's vote, L-A-U-Z-O-N.com. Um, you can sign up as a volunteer. You can sign up for our emails. You can certainly make a donation to the campaign. That's very much appreciated because we need funding to, you know, run ads, do mailers, you know, put signs out, all of that stuff. So that's a critical thing. Um, and, you know, the opposition is certainly well-funded, so that's always needed as a Republican in Massachusetts. Um, but anyone who wants to get involved, please visit my website. You can follow us on Facebook as well, um, Twitter, you know, all kinds of social media. So please, even to be what I would call a 30-second volunteer, give us follows on social media, share our posts, you know, like everything, just spread the message. That helps tremendously. Um, but again, I'll be accessible for anyone who's reaching out. And, uh, even if you don't live in the district, you know, you might not be able to vote for me, but I can vote for you on Beacon Hill. So there we your go. support Amen. is critical. And awesome. we'll, we'll drop those links in the, in the comments too, or, or, not, or uh, in, in the, the description. description of the video too. And right. conservatives don't let liberals outspend us. We have more money than them. Don't do that. <laughs> Pony up cash filled conservatism here. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> Again, thank you for Appreciate coming it. My thank name is Sam Mealy. My name is Hunter Young. And we are the, the Sons, Sons of, of Liberty. Liberty. Thank you, guys.